Comedian Jeff Goldsworthy, some of you shake your head knowing who I'm talking about. He became famous for his routine, what's it called? You might be a redneck if. You remember some of those? Some of you guys go, uh huh. The gal's going, what? In any case, he became famous for his, you might be a redneck if, and you know some of them. Uh, you might be a redneck if you took a fishing pole to SeaWorld. Okay. Or you might be a redneck if you took a, if your dad walked you to school because you're both in the same grade. You might know, or might not know, that there are actually redneck churches. Did you know that? You might be a redneck church if people ask when they learn that Jesus fed 5,000 folks whether the two fish were walleye or northern pike. <laughs> and what bait was used to catch them, eh? Oh, or you might be a redneck church is when the pastor says, I'd like to ask Bubba to help us take up the offering. And five guys and two women stand up. <laughs> or you might be a redneck church if when you're talking baptism, it's referred to as branding. Okay. Oh, my. Uh, well, you know, to some extent, and not the humorous side, but we could do the same thing with those often mentioned religious folk back in Jesus' days, the Pharisees. You know, you might be a Pharisee if you pray in public but not in private. You might be a Pharisee if you judge people by the company they keep. Or you might be a Pharisee if you think that if somebody else does something good, they must be involved in some sort of scam. Or you might be a Pharisee if you think your traditions and observations, and not your character, determine your purity. Whoa. Hold on there, Pastor Neil. Some of you are saying, that's not very nice, nor is it fair. Because historically, we know that the Pharisees, they were actually pretty good stand-up folks. Oh, that's right. And if that's what you're thinking, folks, you're actually right. Because if any one of us here in the room this morning were back in the first century, we would have probably thought of the Pharisees as the most honorable and respectable of all people. Because they actually were in their culture. Let me explain. The term itself, Pharisee, the name Pharisee, it means separate one, set aside, separate one. And they'd been around for a long time, this group of folks. Especially during the period of the Greek occupation of Israel, you can check that out historically. The Pharisees were the one who encouraged the Jewish folks to remain true to God, to reject that secular Greek culture, to reject and stay away from that Greek philosophy, to stay away from the Greek religion. These are the guys who held firm. You see, without the Pharisees, the Jewish faith might never have been in existence any longer, might have disappeared. And Pharisees were also very generous in their giving. Without a stewardship campaign in the fall each year, they were still tithers, 10 percenters. And they prayed, not just on Sunday mornings or Saturdays in their case, they prayed several times each day, often in public, so that they could serve as an example to others. Now, anyone back then would have admired the faith and devotion of these holy folks, probably living holier lives than any of us today. I mean, they obviously had deeply held beliefs that they practiced with faithfulness, sincerity, and, and discipline. 
And from that perspective of doing all the religiously and holy things, they were good folks. Well, there's a big but. That is, the Pharisees, sad to say, over the years, had become so caught up over the years of doing right things that it kind of morphed into all about the external observations of a collection of rules and not an internal attitude of the heart. They had drifted from an attitude of wanting to do the godly thing in praise to God, of respectful lifestyles, to become focusing on doing the ritualistic things. It was actually quite sad what they had become. And that's the image that you and I have 2,000 years later when we think of the Pharisees. We think of bad, mmm, so put it in that perspective of history and what these folks were. Well, the Pharisees are part of our story, are uh, representing this morning. Uh, they represented the height of human purity at that time. But there's also another character, if you heard Bob read the text, the gospel lesson this morning. And that represents the precise opposite of what the Pharisees represent. You see, by the rules of the first century Jewish faith, there was no one further from God than a Canaanite woman that we read about. I mean, her first problem was, here you go, she was a woman. Oh my. And women, women back then, sad to say, were not a whole lot above the property status. There was even a special court, a separate section in the church, in the temple, that was called the Court of the Women because women had to be kept far from the holier parts of the temple. They were considered to be incapable of understanding the teaching of the law. They were never allowed to discuss face-to-face -face with the rabbis or the teachers of the law. Instead, they were to learn what they needed to know from their husbands or fathers at home. Woo! No wonder the Pharisees had a cow when they saw Mary and other women seated at the feet of Jesus, a rabbi, learning and discussing scripture. Oh my goodness. And still worse. This guy wasn't even a Jew. She was a descendant of the Canaanite folks who were thought of as cursed by God. When the Canaanite folks, that section just on the outside of Israel, hadn't God chosen to take their land and give it to the Israelites as promised back then in Moses' day? I mean, these were the people, these Canaanite folks, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whoa. I mean, surely had God, God had good reason for rejecting these folks. And they and all their descendants were cursed for eternity, at least in the minds of the Jew. I mean, these were the enemies of Israel. And notice, as you listen to the reading, sad to say, that the disciples themselves, they bought into this Jewish worldview, their cultural view of, of this woman. A woman and a Canaanite doesn't get much worse than that. And they didn't bring her to Jesus and ask him to help her, no. What'd they do? They came to Jesus, but to tell him this woman was bothering them. They, Jesus, get rid of her, send her away. I mean, not only did they not want to help her child, that's why she was there. They didn't even want to share the message of God and his love with her. I mean, they thought she was way too far outside the reach of God to believe in the God of Israel or to have faith that Jesus could heal her child. Okay, all that background. Now we come to the part, how did Jesus respond? 
to the disciples after that request. This is often a very puzzling text to us today. We kind of look at it and kind of go, wow. Doesn't sound a bit out of character for Jesus. Because his immediate reaction was what? Remember what he said? Silence. Kept his mouth shut. And we're thinking, well, that sounds kind of mean. Sounds kind of uncaring, doesn't it? Why would he be silent? What was Jesus thinking? Well, here the passage becomes very difficult for us to understand in our day and age. You see, we see this woman as a sympathetic figure. She had a need. She had all these issues that are going on in her life. And yet Jesus seemed unimaginably harsh. We're going, that's not my Jesus. I mean, first he states that he was sent not to her and her clan or anybody else, sent to the house of Israel. And then he compares this gal to a dog. <laughs> it wasn't getting much lower than that as well in that culture. So what are we to make of all this? A lot of different thoughts. But I, I think Jesus is taking advantage of this teachable moment to teach an important lesson to the disciples and any who would hear this story thereafter. And I'm thinking, could it be that Jesus is speaking somewhat tongue-in-cheek in a, a wry exchange in which God's unlimited grace is being highlighted, that the focus is on what God does do, not what he doesn't do? I mean, could Jesus be so delighted to have found one who's not just bartering with a religious system or proud of a heritage that he can't resist a bit of baptire? I mean, Jesus knows he can heal her daughter, right? He'd proved it enough other miracles. He knows this gal, this mother's heart, is good. Obviously loves her child and wants nothing but the best for her. So he decides, possibly, to engage in a, maybe a bit of a lighthearted moment with a faithful woman. In essence, under this scenario, here's what they might have said. Now, you know, Jesus is saying to her, that God only cares about Jews. He says with kind of a, weak and a wink and a smile. And when she catches on, she volleys back to Jesus. But your bread is so special, I'll be happy to eat the crumbs. And kind of chuckles a little bit and shakes his head. And then what does he tell her and his disciples? Never have I seen such faith. And he ends the whole exchange with what? Your daughter is healed. And you notice the very last word, immediately. Wow. Interesting story, isn't it? In any case, this story doesn't portray this contemptuous, mean-spirited God, does it? No. Rather, it portrays a willing, caring God who delights in a sincere seeker, whatever the background or social standing. And in the end, Jesus commends the woman's great faith and heals her daughter. Now, interestingly enough, there's always a lot of interesting things when we read through the Bible. But Jesus only uses this phrase, great faith, twice that we know of. Only twice. Once he's describing the faith of a Roman centurion, a foreign army officer, a captain of the guards of the hated Roman occupation. And Jesus commended him in Matthew 8. And the second is here in our text this morning, a foreign woman. I mean, isn't it interesting that the phrase great faith is mentioned in relationship to outsider. Now, this entire passage, my friends, represents a faith turned utterly upside down. I mean, the most righteous of all the children of Israel 
the Pharisees, are called blind guides and condemned. And on the other hand, the one furthest from ritual righteousness is commended for her faith. What's the lesson for us? That's always the case when we gather as his people here. We want some life lessons. What can we take with us? What do we learn from this? Well, to answer that question, let me ask you a question. Would you agree that much of our current popular culture and attitudes right now, here, stresses what words? Tolerance and inclusiveness. You've heard those phrases, right? And being tolerant, being inclusive, they can be a very good thing, can't it? And these basically laudable ideals, sad to say, have morphed in our current culture into a philosophy best described as, and this is my definition, anything goes for anyone doing anything they want without thought of any consequences. Well, this new definition of tolerance and inclusiveness has expanded today to the point where our kids are being taught there's no such thing as right or wrong. That there's no such thing as absolute truth. That any and all styles of life and religions are equally valid and that it's all a matter of personal choice to do whatever you want without any repercussions for the choices and actions you take even a bit more frightening to me, is the frequent attacks on anybody who challenges this new philosophy of anything for anyone. What do we find? Traditional and historical biblical beliefs upon which our nation was originally founded and are now being derided and labeled in such terms as what? We're labeled as intolerant or bigoted or even hateful. I mean, anything that smacks of exclusive claims of being right or true is denounced and ridiculed. That scares me, my friend. You see, with this new definition of tolerance and inclusivity as the seemingly ultimate and most important virtue in the world around us today, many Christians are struggling with how to live in this world, aren't you? Don't you wonder, what in the world? This isn't right, but what do I do? How do I live? How do I work within this framework of these new definitions? Many folks within Christian Umbrella are trying to present the gospel in a way that doesn't offend anybody. I mean, I don't want to go out of my way to make enemies. I'm not after that. But at what expense? In so doing of not wanting to offend, many have watered down Christian beliefs and lifestyles until they no longer resemble any traditional biblical beliefs and practices. So that you realize I'm not just making stuff up. Here's a real life example. It's called the Sparkle Creed, Sparkle Creed. Uh, this is attributed to Rachel Small Stokes and it's a modified version of the Apostles' Creed. It was recited on YouTube about eight weeks ago. So we're talking less than two months ago. On June 27th, 2023, at Edina Community Lutheran Church in Minneapolis in honor of LGBT Pride Month with co-pastor Ann Helgen leading the congregation. You can look on it if you want. But here's what it says. I printed this out because this is the creed that was spoken less than two months ago. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, 
who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the ace quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud, whose eyes gaze at the stars and wonder. I believe in calling to each of us that love is love is love. So, beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help me in my unbelief. That's very scary to me, to realize this kind of thought is being touted as good and godly and loving, and even worse, it's being accepted as true and healthy by way too many folks under the Christian auspices. Well, I want us to take a look, my friends, at what God actually said, what he has done, and what he expects of his creation. And I want you to have a look at how real love, real love, is demonstrated to see the contrast. Now, would you agree that throughout his life, Jesus made exclusive claims about himself? He claimed he was right. He claimed he alone had the solutions, and he alone was the way to God. Listen to some of the quotes. John 14, I am the way. I am the way. The truth, not one of many truths, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Sound like a man who was kind of wishy-washy? He was a man who certainly didn't believe that there, it didn't matter what you believed as long as you were sincere. And as regards to the idea that all roads lead to God, it doesn't matter what label you want to put on things. What are we told? It says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it, Matthew 7. How would Jesus be accepted today? Wouldn't he be unacceptable to the 21st century American society as just as much as he was in the first century Judean society. I mean, as if, as if his earthly life was lived in America in the 21st century, it probably have been vilified in the press as an intolerant religious fanatic because he taught that the only way to God was how? Through him and his teaching. And folks would say, how arrogant. And that any other way was the wrong way. He taught that there's only one right way. And that if you tried a different way to him, your way was wrong and invalid. Wow! Pretty strong stuff, isn't it? What was his way? You know it, don't you? Look at how Jesus interacted with the Canaanite woman in our text to get the answer to that. Here's a living example, and that's why we're talking about it this morning. When approached by her, Jesus responded to her ultimately with how? Ultimately with compassion and care and reaching out to meet her needs. He physically healed her child. And when did he do it? Immediately. And then he commended her faith and her confidence in him. 
Now that, my friends, is the ultimate true definition of inclusion, of acceptance and love. You see, it's true, my friends, the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. That's true. That's true. Jesus Christ claims to be the only way to God. He can't be combined with any other religious system or belief. Modern culture, it seems, doesn't like that. And they deride Christ as being some intolerant for being exclusive and for being narrow-minded bigot. And that, in terms of philosophy of the world today, I guess it fits. And his teachings today could be written off as the rantings of a crazy first-century lunatic if it were not for all the well-attested fact that following his death on the executioner's cross on that hill called Calvary, he was miraculously restored to life. And that scores of witnesses saw him alive after seeing him dead. How's that for credibility of his message? His disciples seeing him to be the conqueror of death and powered by his spirit, fearlessly proclaiming his gospel. And he was the only and exclusive way to God. Even when their lives were threatened as a result, these followers of Jesus, they still boldly proclaimed what? Nor is there salvation in whom? In any other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4. Wow. What does it mean for us as we leave here this morning? It means that all of us, all cultures, all races, all backgrounds are included in one simple basic truth. And what's that truth? We all have the same problem. You know what your problem is? Same one I have. Problem is sin. You see, all of us are separated from God and one another because of our sin. Romans 3 puts it this way. All have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And herein lies the great inclusivity of the gospel. This is the highlight of everything I've been saying today. So when you leave here today, this is it. All of us are offered the same solution. The way opened by Christ, it's not restricted by culture. It's not restricted by race. It's not restricted by time, by gender, by wealth, by background. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. It is sheer grace. That little word, grace. And the complexity and totally undeserved favor and love of God that we do not deserve. And yet, he gives it to us. That's what saves us. That's what brings us to God and reunites us with other human beings. That grace is available to whom? Oh. And it's available to you, my friend. The most inclusive thing in the universe, but it can be found exclusively through one person and one person alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a religious system or a set form of prayer or good deeds, but a person, Jesus, the Christ. And for that, we say, thank you, Lord. Amen.